0: And if you're new and you don't know where your child should go, just follow the crowd out to your left, my right. They will be cared for. Before we open the Word together, I have a a few announcements to make, and almost all of them have to do with women's Bible studies. So if you're a woman and you want to um, uh, learn more about your faith, more about the Lord, um, then you have four different opportunities here, very active women's Bible study um, schedule. Um, if you're interested, we have a one on Tuesday morning. It uh, goes by the name of Restless. It's a Bible study that's uh, being led by Stephanie Nunes. That will be on Tuesday morning from 9 to 11, beginning February 8th. Um, if you can't do Tuesday morning, well, then you have Tuesday evening um, from 7 to 8, 45. Uh, the book that they'll be studying is, or the study is Extraordinary Women of Faith, led by Jennifer Forsyth. And if Tuesday morning or Tuesday evening doesn't work, then you can come Thursday evening. There's a book club, and they're going to be reading the book, Evidence Not Seen, a Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II, led by Kathy Zucchini, Um, and that will be at her, um, led by Kathy Zucchini, beginning February 20th. And um, if Tuesday morning or evening and Thursday evening doesn't work for you, then Monday evening. um, There's another uh, Bible study led by Um, let's see, Dorothy Flynn will be doing that. And that's during the blast and and stomp hours. So if you're a young mom and you want to bring your kids and have them go to blast and stomp so you can get away and and do that Bible study, that's what it's there for. So Tuesday morning, Tuesday evening, Thursday evening, and Monday evening. That's quite a few. Um, In addition to that, um, if you're somebody who's looking for a place to serve and and, uh, you would like to allow a a young mother to um, have the freedom to do a Bible study, they are looking for some people who'd be willing to volunteer to do some child care so that um, others could go and study. So if you're interested in that, you can call the church office and um, that would be a way of caring for the body of Christ. And then last but not least, um, the men next week, Saturday, are doing a pre-Super um, Bowl kind of a simulcast thing where you get to hear um, testimonies and so forth from players. And so if you're interested in that, that Saturday morning. They're doing sign-ups in the back. And I should back up and say if there, you have any questions about the women's Bible studies, I believe they will have a representative of the women's uh, ministry there back in the foyer. So it's all back there, and hopefully you'll make use of it, and, and the Lord will, will meet you. Uh, we, we are headed back after a long hiatus from Galatians um, before Advent season and the new year, back into Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. And um, we're getting back to the just basics of the gospel. And, and I just want to um, encourage you, urge you, this morning, to do your best to listen with fresh ears to the truth, um, I think one of the greatest enemies of, of God's truth is to become so familiar with it that we um, we stop listening and we stop the wondering and the astonishment and the amazement of just what the gospel is and realizing it has revolutionary power, not just in one area of life, but every area of life. And, um, and so I, I, I ask you, before we, even, um, before we even open the word together, if you would just... Say to the Lord, help me to hear this with fresh ears and um, that I would hear the Spirit speak to me, um, words of power that will, um, that will bring freedom and new understanding and new appreciation, new gratitude, new love for Christ because of, of this thing we call the gospel. So will you take just a moment and just ask the Lord to give you fresh ears uh, to hear what the Spirit is going to say to you this morning. Father, you are good, and I have uh, been a student of your word for many, many years, and, and I still feel like I'm on um, the opening introduction of just how amazing your truth is and your gospel and what you've done. And I I, I just meditate on, on things that tell us that there is no way to fully comprehend the unsearchable riches of what Christ has done for us that's contained in this thing we call the gospel, which many of us reduce down to a nice, neat little box, and we think we have an adequate understanding of it, and, and in fact, it's so big, it's so massive that that through this thing we call the gospel, you have shown forth the glory of Jesus and um, the glory of who you are, your heart, and um, and it is immeasurable, incomprehensible, astonishing, wonder-producing, awe-inspiring. And Lord, we need a fresh understanding of your truth. So, Lord, I pray against the the numbness of familiarity that many of us bring to this topic, and. I pray that we would be able to hear it as, as the first time. Um, to hear its liberating power, and more importantly, to believe in its liberating power. To know it's what defines us, it's what identifies us as your people. It's what gives us hope, it's what gives us meaning, it's um, what gives us value and worthiness. It's not found in anything else, but simply um, your truth, your gospel, and what you've done for us in Jesus. So give us fresh years this morning. And I pray, give me clarity of, of speech. Lord, I know you love your people. And I know you want this message to be delivered in love. And so I pray that it would be, and I pray that they would sense your love for your people um, through the text and through the teaching of your word. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that I have come to know about God and and appreciate and love about him is the um, the way in which the Lord has embedded into the fabric of our human experience Realities that help us understand who he is by way of experience, um, two of the uh, most powerful in my own life, and I, I think there are probably two of the most powerful in scripture too, things that he has given to us uh, in life by way of experience to, to know him better is marriage and, and, and children um, that is, we oftentimes think of marriage simply as a functional thing that God gave us to you know multiply and fill the earth and, and indeed that is in part true, but But we also know from Scripture that that God gave us that tangible reality and has woven it into our human experience to point to something much higher. And that is in the experience of what I think is the greatest expression of human love, that is marriage, to to teach us by way of experience um, just how passionately our Father loves us as his bride. Even in a broken world where marriages aren't the greatest, there still is a taste within marriage of, of, of that highest expression of human love and, and joy. And God's like, this is kind of what it's like, but on speed a thousand times. That's how much I'm passionate about you as my bride. And he gave us those things to better understand his heart. Um, in other words, they're not just functional gifts. They are revelatory gifts We're, to understand God more as a result of that gift of marriage. Or, or children, too both being children as well as having children. Um, In the role or uh, place of being a child, you know, one of the things that we, if we look back on, if we're adults, if you look back on a time in which you probably at different moments in your life say, man, I wish I could go back there. Not in the sense that I'd ever want to go through junior high or high school again, but in the sense that there's that time when you're a child where you're never worried about, is there going to be food on the table? Am I going to be able to pay the mortgage? Am I going to be able to pay my car payment? Am I going to be able to have a roof over my head? So those are things that, in most homes, we accepted with a rather simple faith that they were always going to be handled by our parents. You know, that's why childhood was so stress-free. I look at my children, I'm like, man, sometimes I just like to change places with you, You know? And that role is, 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 again, something that's somewhat revelatory in that that's how the Lord, our Father, wants us to relate to him as his children, which is why Jesus keeps pointing at children saying, be like them, be like them, because in the role of a child, there's a simple faith that your father's got it covered, you know? But then the opposite is also true, is that, you know, for those who have been given the opportunity to be a mom or a dad, there's, there's this, this experience that's, that really goes beyond description. I mean, you can't really define, I think it's undefinable, um, how a parent feels towards their child and how intense that love is, with the possible exception of teenage years in which um, we get to experience kind of maybe what the heart of God does in grieving over those rebellious moments. But there's, you know, that love, and then um, your child falls and splits his or her chin open and needs stitches, and they're crying, and just everything in you just just wants, and there's no way of expressing, to take care of to feelings of pity and compassion um, that we have for our children. And again, the Bible draws us to those things, saying as, as a father has compassion on his children, so your father has compassion on you. Or, or the feelings of exhilaration and joy of seeing your child um, excel at something and enjoy doing something well is, is also just off the charts. And again, I, those are not just functional realities of being able to have children. They are um, kind of revelatory analogies by which we can understand how our Father feels about us as his children, as his sons and his daughters. Well, those things that I've just mentioned that I think God has given to us by way of Weaving into the fabric of our everyday lives expressions that show us his heart and marriage and and being children and having children all hold one common idea, and that is they are all part and parcel of what it means to be family. I have, and I'm sure many of you probably feel the same way, I have grown to really understand and relish and cherish the richness of what family really means. Um, And I think that it's one of those lenses that the Lord has given to us by which we may understand and tell the story of the Bible. I mean, there are, I think, different lenses by which you can look at the story of the Bible and the gospel. One is a kingdom lens of God reigning and doing something in his son Jesus to bring about his reign. Or another lens is the lens of salvation, look how God saved the world. And I think another lens that the Bible equips us to see the story through and the gospel through is the lens of family. I mean, from beginning to end, you're just constantly bombarded by the idea of sons and daughters and father. Um, I mean, the opening genealogy of Adam, the very first man, you know. He's introduced as the son of God, son and father. There's family. There's, of course, marriage, Genesis chapter 2. There's over and over again, we talk, the apostles are referring to the people of God as brothers and sisters, and God as our father, and Jesus as the son. In other words, family permeates the scriptures. And uh, I think one could um, justifiably, based upon the Bible itself, say that the story of the Bible looked at through the lens of family is God, the Father, in his love and his grace, bringing his prodigal daughters and sons back home. That is, he's he's making it a family again. And um, that is a, a particular lens that I think Paul has in mind in his his arguments or description of, of the, the gospel here in Gen, or Genesis, Galatians. Both start with a G, so I'm having a problem with G words right now. Um, Galatians 3, 4, and 5, you'll notice he keeps talking about sons. So wants to be a son. You're not a slave anymore. You're a son. So I think he has this like, like family lens that he's looking through and, and arguing for the gospel of grace as the means by which to enter into this family dynamic. And um, I, I, I appreciate that particular lens because it's so full of richness and, and, um, and passion and relationship. And it's something that we can identify with because of the way he has grafted or woven into our experience what it means to be a husband, wife, and a child. He is going to um, argue um, for the gospel of grace on the basis of his Old Testament Bible. If you were with us back in November, then... Uh, you would have heard a message on galatians three one through five where Paul argues for the Gospel of grace on the basis of their experience that as you start in the spirit in the spirit are you going to continue in the flesh he 's arguing from their experience regarding the Gospel of grace in verse six of galatians chapter three he 's going to kind of switch gears and now he 's going to argue for the gospel of grace from his Bible that is from the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, which is really all he had. The New Testament hadn't been completed yet, and many believe this is the earliest writing in the New Testament, the book of Galatians. So he's going to argue from the word of the day, the supreme authoritative voice of his Old Testament Bible, the free and the gracious um, gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to do it in three ways. Um, He's going to show us the, the right way to be included into the family, the wrong way and then what God did to make it possible. Those three things, right way, wrong way, and uh, what God did to make it possible. Now, to show us the right way, he is going to direct our attention back 2,000 years from Paul's time. He's going to go back and point the finger at what you might consider to be the founding father or the patriarch of the Jewish people. Um, someone who is uh, probably respected and revered more than any other Old Testament character revered by the Jewish people of today as well as uh, the people of Islam, and that is um, Abraham. He's going to point at Abraham and say, what what did Abraham do to be accepted into the family? And he's going to take us into his Bible, the Old Testament, and argue for the gospel. Pointing back at Abraham, um, this is my way of summarizing his, his argument here, is that the right way, the way of blessing, is that God blesses faith with full acceptance into his family. God blesses faith. That's, that's the mark. And that is communicated here in verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read it for you. Beginning in verse 6, it says, "...just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham." And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "...in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith." So he's taken him back to the very founding father, the patriarch who lived some 400 years before there was ever a Ten Commandments, before God ever said, hey, my people need to be circumcised to show themselves as my people. Um, Here, Abraham is is called of the Lord. He's accepted by the Lord into the family of God. And the question is, on what basis was he accepted? And if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, which he quotes here in verse 6, write the word, Kind of in yellow there believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quotation from from Genesis chapter fifteen and verse six. And in that context, the Lord made some astounding promises to a very old man and an old woman. He says, "You know what? You're going to have offspring, and those offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars. Go out and count the stars. That's how amazing uh, amazingly large your your offspring are going to be." And at, at a, that was at a time which it seemed impossible. He's an old man, she's an old woman. It's a it's a promise against all possibility. And you add to that the other promises that he makes here, citing Genesis 12, is that God basically came to this man, the, 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 the patriarch of, of the Jewish people, and he said, I'm going to bless you. That's an echo word from Genesis 1 and 2, where the very first time it's used, it says that God blessed man. And in Genesis 2... He blessed them. That is a a word that carries favor and benevolence. God's heart, his love. Or in the New Testament, I think it has the idea of salvation. Is that I am going to bless you. This is God's way of saying to Abraham, I'm going to restore what's been lost. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take you into your home that I'm going to provide for you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And not only that, but I am going to bless through you and through your offspring the nation's. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a, um, the scope of that promise is, is, is magnificent. In other words, the world is going to be changed through what I'm promising you right now to bring blessing, my saving blessings to the nations of restoration. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 records for us his simple response. It says that Abraham believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as, as righteousness. Paul makes it pretty clear. By what was this ancient patriarch accepted into the family of God, into blessing? And it's, it's, it's stated over and over and over again in, in two different words. Believed, verse 6, and faith, verse 7, and faith again, and faith down in verse 9, and again at the end of verse 9, and picking up what... Abraham simply did is he believed from his heart that the Lord was going to follow through. That's it. That is, it's, it's by faith that a person is accepted. But then you'll also notice that, that in this, what Paul argues is that actually way back then, God was preaching the gospel to Abraham of a time in which that same blessing would, would go beyond the walls or the borders of the Jewish people to the nations to to the tribes and to the tongues that were non-jewish and not by becoming jewish but the idea is that they will be accepted you know the romans and the greeks and the syrians and persians they they're going to be accepted into my family in the same way that you're accepted They're going to be part of my family because they trusted my word, my promise, that I was going to do what I said I'd do. And the big worker in all of these promises is not Abraham. God's saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm taking you into a home. I'm the one who's going to bless the nations through you. Really, all Abraham does here is believe. And he's making the case so that that it was was talked about 2,000 years ago, guys, in this Old Testament book that we have that, The time was coming in which the Gentiles would be added into the family. That's what the Lord is doing. Making one huge family. And what what makes that possible for us to enter into that eternal family of great blessing with the presence of God in a blessed place filled with all God's people is this simple thing we call believing from the heart. That's what enters a person into the family. And you notice when a person does believe, I said it was in here, and it is, it says right there in verse 7, Know then, these telling Galatians who are largely non-Jewish people, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons. Abraham, family language. Your sons. And I, I, I believe it would be true to say, in the spirit of Paul, and this would probably be offensive to people who are unbelieving ethnic Jews. Paul would probably say that, you know what, if you're a person who trusts in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and trusts in what he has done, then you're in fact more family than the people who are ethnically Jewish but don't believe. You're sons of Abraham, therefore recipients of the promises of blessing, and therefore you're part of the family of God here's his argument. Basically, the only way to, to enter into the family as a son, as a daughter, is one way, and that is we trust him. We believe from our hearts. That's it. I appreciated um, what Ben shared with the, me this morning. It was kind of a um, but it connected. He was just telling me about his dad who's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and my grandmother was diagnosed with the same thing in six months tops, you know, and... Um, just to hear him talk about his Catholic background, and I don't say this to, you know, not Catholicism per se. You know, there's just as much legalism in Baptist churches that I know as in there are in oftentimes um, Catholic circles. But to hear him talk about, and then to see in his own expression, if you ever have a chance to speak with him, that when a person really gets the fact that, you know, you don't have to go through all these hoops, and, and that, that it, God has actually worked on your behalf, and he says, do you trust me? The, the life that that unleashes in a person's heart, is 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 visibly demonstra- it's, it's there. You can see it in their face. And I just appreciated the fact that like here's the life that's on a flourishing because getting the gospel truth that it's it's by faith in what God does alone. Um, that it's not it's not being a Baptist that saves you or or Presbyterian that saves you or. Uh, Lutheran that saves you, there's only one thing that saves, and that's Jesus, and there's only one way to access his salvation, that is you trust him. That's it, period. You, you don't have to, you know, I've probably said this before, I'm just getting worn out, but I just grew up with, you know, after the 15,000th births so of just as, as I am walking forward was the way that you got saved, and, and that communicated a method of salvation and, and the truth, and it's not necessarily an entirely bad one, It just oftentimes um, people put their trust in the means rather than Grace itself, and, um, and uh, that you don't have to get dunked or sprinkled under water, or you don't have to give to charity, or you don't have to love the poor to be saved or included. And as good as those things I just mentioned are, we are not saved by our love. We're saved by our faith. Our fact, the simple fact that we've responded in trust, the same kind of faith that Abraham had when you believe from the heart, yes, I trust you. That's it. That's why it's good news. It's, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a process, a system that you have to go from point A to point B to point C to point D and then after you get done, you pass the class and you're part of the family. That's, that's not how the gospel works. And imagine how revolutionary that is to a, to a person who's raised in paganism, who's uh, under the the the, the fear of if I don't offer this sacrifice or payment to the temple that that God's going to curse me and so therefore begrudgingly offering this this sacrificial lamb or calf and, and then to hear the Christian gospel. You know what? That stuff doesn't get you anywhere. But we serve a God who has done everything on your behalf and all he simply asks you is do you trust it to be true from the heart? So there you have Paul's, the way of blessing, pointing back to Abraham in the Old Testament. Here's an example. Why was he accepted and on what basis are you accepted? And it's simply this, it's faith. Then he goes the next step in his his argument, the wrong way or the way of the curse. God curses those who rely upon their own power to perform moral instruction, a.k.a. law. The curse is a pretty severe word but that's the word that Paul uses here in verses 10 through 12. And if I may, for those of you who might be joining us for the first time, fill in just the background of this, is that, you know, here you have a group of of Galatian believers, many of whom were were not Jewish, and and they believed in Jesus, and and somewhere along the way some Jewish teachers came in and said, yeah, it's all good and well that you accepted Jesus as your Messiah and your Savior, but to be a part of, of the family... Um, you've got to go a couple extra other, uh, other steps, and that is you've got to become Jewish. You've got to exercise the right of, of circumcision, and, and you've got to start eating the right foods. That's what identifies us as family. And, um, and Paul's like, wait a second. Now you're adding on to it. Now it's not just faith alone, which is point one, the right way. But now you're saying it's faith and something else. And so he writes this in response to those who are saying now you've got to keep at least a portion of the law. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. So he writes, For all who rely on works of the law, of doing it, are under a curse, for it is written. That's strong language. Cursed, now he he cites Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. He's reaching back into the Old Testament, his Bible, and he's arguing again. If you're going to live this way, you need to read the law carefully. And this is what it says. It says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, and he quotes again, Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, does does the law, shall live by them. This is uh, for anybody who's tempted to think that, okay, I trust in Christ, but I, I still need to keep these certain things in order for me to be fully accepted as God's family, Paul is going to say something here that, is, uh, that just well crushes the idea. Because you notice what's in pur- purple, yellow, I'm not colorblind. Um, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book. He's saying, listen, you, you can't just keep some of them. Your favorite ones are the ones that just work for you. You can't say, you know, I like nine of the Ten Commandments, but one of them, the one about not working on the Sabbath thing, that really doesn't work for me. That's kind of of true of our rather eclectic culture, which wants to pick and grab whatever it likes, you know, because we're the center of our own universe, and you say, listen, if you're going to adopt this particular process, and you're going to insist that a person has to be circumcised, or a person has to start following your dietary regulations, then you need to keep all of it, because that's exactly what it says. It doesn't say some things written in the book, it doesn't say a few things written in the book, it says all things written in this book. That means not only keeping the big ten, but that also means keeping all the small minutia, the hundreds of ones, some of which are really, really strange. So if there are people this morning who have tattoos, let me just tell you, you're already a lawbreaker. And if you're thinking about getting one and you're relying upon your performance of the law, you want to think again. If you ate in the last week or month at the dead fish or red lobster, you had lobster or shrimp, or smoked duck, you're already a lawbreaker because you violated it. If this morning you're wearing cotton and polyester together, you're hosed because you're a lawbreaker. Now, I don't understand why all those particular laws were given in that time and place, but I'm sure they understood in their cultural context. Or, heaven forbid, you pull out your little iPhone and look at work email on Saturday because that's a violation of the Sabbath. Say, listen, you can't pick and choose. The law is an indiv- indivisible whole. You can't divide it up. You're going to insist that in order to be accepted by God, you've got to do three. Well, then, you're wrong because the law itself says you've got to keep them all. You keep 99% of them but miss the 1%, you still are under a curse if you're relying upon that. Now, see, that's, that's pretty potent stuff. It's, it's, it's everything or nothing. And that's true, not just of people who are trying to keep the... Literal law of Moses, but I think that's true of all um, systems of religion, where moral achievement is the basis of your acceptance or your inclusion into karma or acceptance by Allah or or any of the other things. Is you're under a curse because it's based upon human performance of particular set of moral instructions? And he's saying. You're under a curse. And to be under a curse means you're on the bad side of the Lord. To be under a curse means you're on the punishing end of his justice, which is a place none of us want to be. He's saying it's the wrong way. It's, just, it's, it's faith alone. And he's just grinding it down here, and you can't mix it. You notice that the, the two are, are, are contradictory. It says, but the law is not of faith. You're either going to rely on God's working or you're going to rely on your own strength. One or the other. And you can't have it both ways. That's the way of the curse. Wrong way. Then he finally moves in the third step of the argument to what God did to, to change the curse into a blessing. Now, Abraham was a a sinful man. Genesis isn't quiet about the fact that he lied at least on one occasion and sold his wife out. Um, So how is it that the Lord can bless Abraham in a way he didn't deserve um, so that he would avoid the curse which he did deserve? And that brings us to the very focal point of redemption and the central work work of God in human history to make people like you and I family. And that is um, Jesus or the great transfer. That Christ became our curse so that we could receive his blessing. And that word transfer just is a good picture word for for what happens here because it says Christ redeemed us. He purchased or rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written, and he goes back into the Old Testament again, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, which is an image of the cross. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Again, through faith, through faith, through faith. You know, the way that this is stated, and you ponder it, it's just like Paul doesn't waste words. He doesn't say in verse 13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of Allah by taking the curse from us. But he redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. Taking the curse still creates some distance between the sinless Jesus and the curse. But there's no space left in the way it's phrased. He became the curse. It's similar to what Paul says in Second Corinthians five, when he said that he who knew no sin it doesn't say he bore our sin, it says he became sin. He became the essence, though he never sinned himself, he became the essence of what repulsed God the most as the rightful son and took, satisfied, and extinguished that curse in himself so that the blessing that he rightfully deserved as the true son of God could be passed on to us. He takes the curse in its fullness And then extends to all who trust Him the blessing that He rightfully deserves His sons so that we could be family. Free from the curse and promised and full of God's blessing. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, not one missing. That's what He did. That's the great work of curse absorption so that the blessing of his sonship could pass to us. What that means is, let's just pull it back to the center here. You know, this is the simple gospel truth. There's only one way. And Jesus alone has paved that way. He's the only one who lived up 100% to the law of God and therefore deserved the blessing. And he's the only one who can absorb God's curse in its fullness so that we can go free And all the Lord asks and requires of us to be included in the family is not to jump through the hoops that people try to set up so they can feel good about themselves, but simply trusting in the truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Period. That's good news, and that's what makes us family. So, if you're here this morning and and you believe that, even if it's a a mustard seed kind of belief, then you are full fledged family. With God the Father is your Father who says to you through Christ He says, there's no way I could love you more. And the simple fact that you trust me means you're mine forever and I'm yours forever. You're part of the family. And that's the reality with which we are to live in. And that should. The whole idea again back to family. Father and son. And you think about Jesus as the as, as, as God's own son who is the God man. You know it's He just didn't die for us to make us subjects. Although we forever will be subjects of his kingship, and he has an authority we will never have. And yet at the same time, what he does is he he makes us brothers. The first fruit amongst many brothers. He makes us part of his own family. That's that's mind-blowing. So think about what that means each day, you know? I I was thinking back into my past, and this is an analogy, and I close with this, okay? But listen. Now, I I remember as a a young child, sitting on the floor and listening to my my grandparents talk. And they were talking about life in the Depression. Which, you know, most of us have just read about. um, Heard about. You know, dark times, hope dissolving. War. uh, At least, after one war, preparing for another. And and I, I listened to them talk, and they talked about their experience. And they, they, they spoke about it with a kind of, a, like, a, like, they kind of relished the experience. They, they talked about getting together, the brothers and sisters and their wives, and, 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 and they, they cooked with the only thing they had, and that was biscuits with a little butter and honey. Never forget this. Stuck into my mind. And the reason it stuck into my mind wasn't the fact that they ate biscuits and honey and butter, but was the fact that they spoke about those times with such affection. Like they looked back to a time that was just brilliant. It was full. And, and you would think that they were talking about a vacation in southern France or Cancun or Hawaii. But no, they were talking about you know, biscuits and butter. And remember that? Remember, and they spoke about it with such affection and such fondness. And I think the reason is because at those times, life became uncluttered. And in those times, they enjoyed what matters most. They enjoyed the simple fact that they had each other. And I, I look back in my own life, and I bet you can too. In and, and those times which things were kind of, you know, to the wire, you, your paycheck was all spoken for, and you're living off potato soup three days a week as you're going to school, you're scratching through the console of your car to try and get enough change to go to the dollar movies, You look back and, man, those were some really good times. You didn't have a lot, but that's because life was uncluttered. And in those moments, you simply enjoyed what's most important. You enjoyed simply that of family. And I'm taking this beyond human family. You know, somewhere along the lines, and I think there are a lot of people in here like this, life gets cluttered. And that which is most essential is loss. Pretty soon you have the anxieties and worries. You've forgotten what it means to be a child, allowing God your father to continue to provide for you. And rest in the simple fact that he, he takes care of uh, trillions of sparrows and you're not a problem for him. To live in the simple fact that you have a Father. And when you have career and family and all of a sudden you have possessions in a house and you have cars and you have oil changes to do and lawns to mow and, and life is cluttered and overburdened and the joy is sucked out of life. And then, then life becomes this constant back and forth of, of disappointment, discouragement. And you know what? I think the gospel would say to us, You've got to come back to the very essence, life uncluttered. Don't let those worries of the world choke out what my word, the gospel, does in your life. And that is it ensures. It ensures that you have a Father in heaven who loves you. And he can shoulder the burden of your life. And all of those things. And you need to live in that trust. Live in that faith. And to recognize that, that we have Christ not only as our king but also Our brother. And to know, in this day, we have each other. So even when things are dicey and things are difficult, I mean, what's at the center is this thing called, called family. And that we do have a Father in heaven. And he does bear the burdens. And he has he paved the way for, for us to experience what it means, the best of what it means to be family. Not only in this life, but the life to come. And in that simple reality of what it means to be family, God breaks loose this life in us. We're able to, to sing even do it doesn't seem like we should and able to rejoice even when there are all those pressures of life on us because we know we're part of, of a family. And I hope you'll hear that this morning. Wherever you're, you are, you're part of a family. God is your father and he's paved the way. He simply calls us trust me. The righteous shall live by faith because God has provided everything as our Father. I pray you'd hear that this morning. Lord, may you grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe what is most essential. That one thing at the center of life that we often clutter over with all kinds of worries and and tasks and pressures and stresses. And allow us once again to live in the simplicity of knowing that we're your sons. And we're your daughters forever, um, infinitely loved by you because of Jesus. And you simply call us to trust. So help us, Lord, in these times and this day to trust you with our whole heart. In Christ's name, amen.